Just stop oil. Are they getting it right or are they getting it wrong? I have a view from inside the oil industry. Can protest and free speech survive in the face of new laws and legal procedures which can bankrupt protesters without even taking them to court? And a minister resigns just before the Prime Minister sacks him, but claims it's for a completely different reason. Hello, it's Thursday the 6th of July. I'm Anthony Day and this is the Sustainable Futures Report. The objective of Just Stop Oil is to persuade the British government to stop permitting the exploitation of new fossil fuel resources predominantly in the North Sea. They do this by causing disruption. They've caused traffic chaos by walking slowly along London streets or by blocking motorways. They held up the start of London's Gay Pride March. They've disrupted high-profile sports events, such as snooker, and last week there were pictures in the papers of a burly cricketer who bundled the protester under his arm and hauled him off the pitch at Lord's Cricket Ground. This week the Wimbledon Tennis Championship started, and to prevent disruption, the security staff at the gates have been instructed to carry out meticulous searches to ensure that no cable ties, locking-on devices or coloured powders can be taken in. The result of this has been enormous queues at the entrances, allegedly of up to 10 hours in some cases. Arguably, Just Stop Oil could claim this as a triumph because these searches and delays are likely to continue throughout the two weeks of the tournament and everybody will know that it's about Just Stop Oil. If they do decide to disrupt play, it would surely make more sense to do it in the second week, the finals week, when far more people will be watching on television across the world. Which is worse, a disrupted match or two weeks of angry spectators standing in line in the hot sun or pouring rain? I think the All England Tennis Club has overreacted. But stop press! As I start to record this episode, I learn that Just Stop Oil have actually got into Wimbledon and scattered orange confetti over court number 18. So much for meticulous searching. Just Stop Oil have made their point and may do so again before the end of the tournament. And it is a non-violent protest. The government is adamant that they will continue to authorise new exploration licences in the North Sea and have specifically eliminated clauses in new legislation which would have prevented them from authorising new coal mines. As you remember, they have already authorised a new mine in northwest England. On the other hand, the Labour opposition has said that it would impose a moratorium on new exploration, although it would permit exploitation of existing wells. The Labour Party has received campaign donations from Dale Vince, founder of green energy supplier Ecotricity. Vince also supports Just Stop Oil, leading Conservative politicians to claim that the Labour Party also supports Just Stop Oil, which it says it doesn't. When snooker was disrupted by protesters pouring orange powder on the tables, Dale Vince spoke about the injustice of the floods which drove millions of people from their homes in Pakistan last year, saying, I find it ironic that we can tolerate this climate crisis, but not a bit of disruption to snooker. When protests took place at the cricket, he said a few minutes' disruption was nothing in comparison to the four million deaths allegedly caused by the climate crisis and the 20 million people 
made homeless because of it. I told you recently about a conversation with somebody who claimed that Just Stop Oil was completely misguided because if the government gave in to their demands and no new resources were exploited in the North Sea, then the country would have to depend on oil from places like Russia and be indirectly subsidising their attacks on Ukraine. I promised to find out whether this was in fact true, and I've recently been in touch with an oil industry insider. This is what he told me. I actually think Starmer and the Labour Party has probably got it about right on the North Sea exploration piece. It's ludicrous to think that oil fields could just shut down overnight. The impact on jobs and levels of corporate compensation would be off the scale. Nor should we unwind already agreed licences. At the same time, however, if you're serious about trying to deal with climate change, then at some point you have to bring an end to business as usual. By formally announcing that no more exploration licences will be allowed from a set date, then no jobs nor investment are affected. Sadly, it does mean that the UK will be forced to take oil and gas from often unpalatable regimes with considerably poorer emission and environmental standards than the North Sea. That, unfortunately, will be the case until demand for those products declines, which is easily the most tricky part of the equation. Nonetheless, by taking a clear lead on oil and gas exploration, it sets a very powerful and tangible example in the decarbonisation process. Without it, how on earth can we preach to developing nations on why they should slow down or cease their own exploration activities? Plus, of course, if you don't start the process somewhere, you will never start it. How much is left in the North Sea? Well, in terms of the question on how much oil can be extracted from the North Sea without new exploration projects, I don't know the answer. Much depends on price, in that if the oil price falls below $50, then I suspect the answer is very little. If it stays high or goes higher, then producers will be able to eke out a great deal more product. It is as much a question of using costly technology as it is about at what point reserves are fully depleted. Sounds like a reasonable argument to me. On the other hand, the government's attitude appears to be to shut down protest at all costs without considering in any way what the protest is about. We have seen changes to legislation making protest more and more difficult. When clauses have been deleted from legislation, they've been brought back in new legislation until the police have almost absolute discretion as to what is a protest and what is criminal behaviour. Just before the coronation, the police arrested people miles away from the procession route on the basis that they might be going to protest. They even locked up an innocent spectator until after it was all over just because she was standing next to some people who might have been going to protest. As far as I know, she has no recourse or compensation. Later this month, supporters of Extinction Rebellion will get together in central York and tie themselves together and link themselves to trees with paper chains. Locking on to other people or to trees, street furniture or other ob objects, even linking arms, is now technically illegal. And the purpose of the event is to demonstrate how onerous the legislation has become. More worrying is the use of the civil law to suppress protests. Apparently people can be bankrupted for the costs of civil action without the actions actually having taken place or judgments entered. 
I'll bring you more on this when I've tracked down another expert. And in other news, last week, as we heard, the government was strongly criticised by the Climate Change Committee and accused of losing its position as an international leader in the fight against the climate crisis. And they're not the only ones to accuse the government, and particularly the Prime Minister, of losing the climate plot. Now, I try and avoid the mess of politics in the Sustainable Futures report, but you will no doubt be aware that former Prime Minister Boris Johnson resigned from Parliament in response to an excoriating report from the Parliamentary Privileges Committee, which found him to have lied repeatedly. A number of Conservative politicians, including Lord Zach Goldsmith, a member of the government, openly criticised the committee and allegedly harassed some of its members. Many considered that Goldsmith's position as a member of the government was untenable in view of his actions and called upon the Prime Minister to sack him. Before that happened, Goldsmith chose to resign. To resign not because he accepted that his behaviour against the committee was unacceptable, but because he believed that the Prime Minister was simply uninterested in environmental issues and his, Goldsmith's, role as Minister for International Environment had become impossible. Goldsmith does have a reputation as a dedicated environmental campaigner. Here are a few quotations from his resignation letter, which runs to some 1,400 words. Before you took office, you assured party members that you would continue implementing measures like ending the live export of animals for slaughter, banning keeping primates as pets, preventing the import of shark fins and hunting trophies from vulnerable species. But I have been horrified, as bit by bit we have abandoned these commitments, domestically and on the world stage. More worrying, the UK has visibly stepped off the world stage and withdrawn our leadership on climate and nature. Too often we are simply absent from key international fora. Only last week you seemingly chose to attend the party of a media baron rather than attend a critically important environment summit in Paris that ordinarily the UK would have co-led. That's a reference to the Paris Finance Summit that I spoke about last week to discuss aid from the wealthy north to the impoverished south. A number of heads of government attended, but Prime Minister Rishi Sunak preferred to go to a party instead. Worse still, we have effectively abandoned one of the most widely reported and solemn promises we have made on this issue, our pledge to spend £11.6 billion of our aid on climate and environment. And that's been making headlines in the papers today. The problem is not that the government is hostile to the environment. It is that you, our Prime Minister, are simply uninterested. That signal, or lack of it, has trickled down through Whitehall and caused a kind of paralysis. I will never understand how, with all the knowledge we now have about our fundamental reliance on the natural world and the speed with which we are destroying it, anyone can be uninterested. He warns that by ignoring the problems of the developing nations, the government risks losing their support at the United Nations. And by ignoring concerns closer to home, the Tory party risks losing the votes of its supporters. This government's apathy in the face of the greatest challenge we have faced makes continuing in my current role untenable. Some quite worrying points here. Full marks for political manoeuvring. I bet you've forgotten all about Goldsmith's behaviour towards the Privileges Committee and he saved the Prime Minister the trouble of firing him. 
The full text of the resignation letter is available on the Sustainable Futures Report website at the end of this episode. And that's all for this week. I'm off to look at ways of revitalising the Sustainable Futures Report and bringing it to a wider audience. Maybe I shall open a Threads account. Yes, that's the new app which has been set up in opposition to Twitter. Anyway, whatever I decide, we'll see what it achieves. And and if it achieves nothing, then I will indeed bring the Sustainable Futures Report to a close with episode number 500. Or possibly sooner. But let's not be pessimistic. I have a number of interviews already recorded or scheduled, so there's quite a lot of content to share with you in the coming weeks. Have a good week. Thanks for listening. And do stay in touch. I'm Anthony Day. That was the Sustainable Futures Report, and there'll be another one next week. (music) 